Hello and welcome to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. I'm Dino Verley, founder and CEO, and today we are back in the podcast studio. Been doing this for over four years now. We're up to, I think, over 77,000 downloads of the Project Purple Podcast. That is an amazing accomplishment. So thank you guys for tuning in every week and listening to all the great guests that we have. And today's a special episode. I say that all the time, that we always have special guests and special episodes, but I truly believe that. But we've got a panel for us here today with some of our former guests. And first, I'd like to make the introductions. I'm going to introduce Cynthia Hayes, who's been on our podcast a couple times. Welcome back, Cynthia, the author of The Big Ordeal, Understanding and Managing the Psychological Turmoil of Cancer. We've got pancreatic cancer survivor, Michelle Miller. Welcome back, Michelle. And pancreatic cancer survivor, John Walmsley. Welcome back. And and before we, we get into it, this is like a New York... East Coast podcast because Cynthia, you're in New York. I'm in Connecticut. I got two other fellow New Englanders all the way up from Maine and Rhode Island. We could be like a uh, a, a music band possibly put together. <laughs> and John, I know you like you play music. I, I, so I'm in. You're in. You're in. John, John, John will lead us through that that quartet here. So welcome everyone to the Project Purple podcast once again. Thank you, Dino. Good, thank Good you, Dino. Good to be here with you. <laughs> and for our audience, this has been a, a long time coming. Uh, I know uh, Michelle and John have, have been awesome with us here to, to come back on the podcast. But Cynthia, you and I have talked about this episode for quite some time. I think summer and travels and just, you know, kind of scheduling, re, uh, you know, getting everyone's schedule in order ha has taken us a little bit longer than I wanted to, quite honestly, and I'm sure for you. But, you know, when we had you on the podcast last, we talked about, you know, bringing survivors back on for a panel to talk about kind of these really high level subjects uh, about what your book has talked about and what you've been doing in the community. I mean, you've been a guest on the podcast, but I follow you on social media. I know you're out and about every day talking about this, this hard subject of how people deal with cancer and how to get through that cancer journey. And not just, I know we focus a lot here on pancreatic cancer, but this is about all cancers. Um, so I, I, I thank you for your patience, first of all. Uh, but this is uh, this is going to be a great episode because, as I said uh, before, we hit record. You know, we've been on this journey with the podcast for a long, long time, and I love doing these episodes. I love doing all the episodes because we're we're sharing knowledge, we're we're providing information. Hopefully, that for some people is the first time that they've heard. Um, about you know certain things that go through the cancer journey and a lot of it's been with pancreatic cancer but that's the power of this podcast is is sharing that information and raising awareness so the more and more we do it the more we bring guests back on to talk about that and talk about these certain subjects i get so excited about it and clearly i've had too much caffeine this morning uh, <laughs> so let's get into it here so our first kind of high level discussion or, or question that we're going to tackle here is the overview of why cancer is so emotional and what to expect. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to hand it off to Cynthia and then we're going to go to our, to our guests here on the panel. So with that, Cynthia, the mic is yours. Well, thank you, Dino. And um, of course, this is a, a subject near and dear to my heart, uh, not only because of my own cancer experience, um, but because of the work that I do um, now in uh, mentoring cancer patients through uh, through 
the tough parts of diagnosis and treatment. Um, and um, as I uh, have spoken uh, about in the past, my own experience with cancer um, was uh, not pancreatic, but endometrial. Um, I had a diagnosis that came totally out of the blue. Uh, I, um, I flunked my pap smear, something I didn't know one could do, but I got a, um, a random call a week after a gynecologic visit. And um, when the cell phone showed that it was my gynecologist's office calling, I assumed um, someone was calling with a billing issue and picked up uh, nonchalantly as I continued on my errands. And um, I sort of stopped dead in my tracks when the doctor actually said, uh, Cynthia, there's some blobbity blah cells here on your um, pap smear and I don't like it. And I need you back in here immediately for uh, follow-up testing. Um, you know, I, at the moment was on a mission and she hung up quickly because she was delivering a baby and I proceeded on my mission and Moments later, I stopped and I Googled um, the cells that she said that, that were detected on my pap smear. And it was like, holy crap, I'm going to die of cancer. And it was just hit me in an instant that, um, that that was a death sentence. And it was only much, much later that I came to understand that that was a common response. Um, and that so many of us, when we hear the words, you've got cancer, assume we're going to die, go through that instant panic um, and um, and are dealing with fear and stress and anxiety uh, so uh, much throughout the, our, our cancer experiences. Um, and of course, I didn't die. I ended up having a radical hysterectomy and six months of chemotherapy and have now been um, uh, free of disease for uh, almost seven years. But the the process of um, finding out about the cancer and going through cancer and uh, having all of that treatment um, led me down a path of, of inquiry um, that uh, helped me understand um, not only that my response was pretty common, but that in fact, um, there is a somewhat predictable sequence of emotional responses that happen for almost everyone um, when they hear the words, you've got cancer. And a lot of that emotional experience is driven by changes at the cellular level, um, chemical changes in our bodies that get translated in the brain as emotional responses. Um, after interviews with hundreds of cancer patients and loving caregivers and a variety of, of experts, um, uh, including neuroscientists, I came to understand that it is those chemical changes um, that, uh, that drive so much of the experience. Um, and a big chemical change being the inflammatory process. Um, I was not a biology major. I am not a doctor. I didn't know a lot of this beforehand, but I've come to understand that um, there's a class of proteins in our body called cytokines. And you may have heard of them recently because cytokine storms are part of the, the COVID response. But cytokines are proteins that allow the immune system to communicate with itself and tell the body what to do to help us heal. Um, and there are pro-inflammatory cytokines and anti-inflammatory cytokines. And when you get a paper cut, the pro-inflammatory cytokines are released to the site of that paper cut. 
And they say, oh, we need some platelets here to close up this wound. Better send some white blood cells because there might be an infection. Oh, produce some more red blood cells because we just lost some out that paper cut. So this whole conversation starts going on in our bodies. Um, and then when the paper cut begins to heal, the anti-inflammatory cytokines are released and they say, okay, pull those extra uh, white blood cells away, let them recover. We don't need any more red blood cells. Everything is calm and the finger heals and that's all fine. But if that's what's going on when you get a paper cut, imagine what happens when you have massive surgery for uh, cancer. Um, and it turns out that chemotherapy causes an increase in inflammatory cytokines, as does radiation treatment, um, as uh, do many immunotherapies, um, and even the presence of cancer cells in our body and the presence of dying cancer cells in our body causes this inflammatory response. And that inflammatory response gets registered in the brain as, oh, we are too sick to deal with life. Let's hide in the cave. Let's pull the covers up over our heads. Let's dive underneath um, the surface because if we put ourselves out there, some lion is going to come chasing us across the prairie and that's going to be the end of us. So our bodies read that sickness behavior as everything that tells us go back to bed. And that encourages a lot of the emotional response that we feel, the fatigue, the um, uh, the fear and anxiety, the depression, the cognitive um, fuzziness that many of us experience. Um, add to that the fact that often our treatment includes steroids or uh, opioids, which again, change brain chemistry, or the surgery or uh, chemotherapy influences the way our hormone producing organs um, uh, behave. Um, and we have more changes. Um, so all of this is going on in our brains, um, but nobody talks about it. And so we don't know as cancer patients that that depression that we're feeling uh, on day um, three or four after a chemo treatment is really the steroids that jacked us up three or four days ago, leaving our system, and now we feel low. We don't understand that it's perfectly normal to have that sense of fatigue and a mental confusion that comes with too many cytokines in our system. Um, and so we think that we're being weak and um, and not um, not trying hard enough to get well, that we're not being uh, positive enough in the experience. And so I've been talking to people about the emotional experience of cancer to try and help raise awareness of the fact that this is going on, whether we talk about it or not. It's not you. It's not a weakness. It's cancer. It's what happens with cancer. And just like a broken leg hurts and you say to the doctor, gee, I got a lot of pain in addition to, um, you know, needing to wear this cast. I'm really uncomfortable. We need to say to our medical care uh, team, to our loving uh, caregiving team, hey, I'm in emotional pain here. There's a lot of stuff going on. And let's talk about that so that I get the support that I need. And there are so many great support organizations out there. But if we don't know that it's okay to ask for that help, we don't ask for it, and therefore we don't get it. So I'm going to play devil's advocate here, and then I want to go to our guests here. Do you think the system 
and we live in a great country, first of all, I'm not trying to badmouth anything here, but do you think the way that the system is created, and I, I, I often see this as like a, there's systemic issues, systematic issues in the system that don't allow for that to happen. So patients have to become their, their own advocate because it's kind of like if you don't ask you don't get right like it's there but again as i go back and not not to to this is not a commercial but like you know hopefully the information we share here because like no one no one no one knows unless they go through it right like you don't know what you don't know right and unless you go through it and unless you ask the right questions which most people don't know what to ask because they've never been through it right yeah so the question then is that potentially this is like a systematic issue or a systemic issue, I should say, within the, the medical field that unfortunately, I think we, we, when we think, when we hear the word cancer, and this is coming from a non-cancer survivor, so take that w- what it is. When people hear cancer, they, they, maybe the medical system is like, okay, how do we cure this? What are the steps to eliminate and move forward and not worry about the exterior, like what all this other stuff? As to your point, Cynthia, you know, you your body goes through this storm and you have this range of emotions that hit you. And that's just you. That's not your family, right? <laughs> There's the, the the other the support system, the external piece outside that we we're not even even mentioning here, right? But you as the as the person going through the cancer, and I think the medical system is designed to cure the cancer, cure the person, and not worry about anything else. So what I'd like to do here is I'd love to get some feedback from our panels here and, and talk about, you know, the the why the cancer so emotional and maybe some of the things that our guests can share with what what they encountered and and how maybe how they managed that that portion of the emotional piece of cancer so we'll go to michelle first sure. happy to start and thanks for thanks for that Dino and cynthia i think i can relate a lot to what you were explaining about the physiological drivers of how i was feeling i wasn't necessarily in the moment feeling those emotions, connecting it with the physiological part of it. Um, and I think my experience, I, I've had wonderful health care throughout um, the course of my treatment. But I also knew whenever I went into the doctor's office for <clears throat> my next chemo session or in preparation for the surgeries or whatnot, when I was asked, how are you feeling? It wasn't, <laughs> I, I knew I wasn't to answer with like mentally, how are you doing? It was they wanted to run through what types of physical um, side effects are you having so they could make adjustments in the medications and things of that nature. But I knew, I think I knew on some level that if I needed to have support for my emotional and kind of spiritual self, that I had to build that, that, that system for myself. Um, And early on when I was um, first diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, I did jump into a Facebook group um, and I found someone there who reached out to me after I had put up a post. And that's how I found this podcast because she had been a guest on the podcast and she was being very generous to reach out to me 
to provide support, but I had this little healthy skepticism of interacting with people on the internet. And I wanted to uh, make sure I knew what, what she was all about before I made that connection. And so I listened to her, her session here on the podcast. Um, but that was kind of the starting of me recognizing that I needed to build a support system for myself that was separate from my medical providers to help me to understand what I'm going through, how, what I'm going to feel mentally. And like, how do you manage some of the um, feelings about how this impacts your, in my case, my spouse or my children or handling, you know, the, um, you know, working and not working um, and and those types of things. So I did, um, I, I guess I would go in saying I didn't have expectations that I would get that type of support from my medical providers, but I did understand that that's something that I needed to have as part of my my um, my team as I went through my treatments and I, I sought out whether it was virtually through other pancreatic cancer patients slash survivors. Um, I did um, seek out a, a, a counselor, so I, I went through some counseling. I felt like I needed someone for me, and I didn't want to continue to, um, you know, your caregivers carry a big, big burden. And at some point, I felt like I needed to have a place to put put some of my heavy stuff without continuing to put it on my husband. And so that was a good outlet for me um, in having a therapist that was just there for me. Um, and then, like I said, uh, kind of a, a grouping of people and forums that I could participate in and interact with and, and find people like me um, to help support my, my emotional uh, journey through having cancer and cancer treatment. Yeah. You raise such a good point. You know, I think that um, so often uh, the, the medical doctor, the oncologists are, are so focused on the physical um, and they're also not necessarily trained in the emotional or um, comfortable in dealing with the emotional. And so it is a don't ask, don't tell situation um, where, you know, they're going to inquire, well, you know, how are you dealing with things in here and in here? Um, they're just going to say, okay, physically, how are you, how are you feeling? Um, and yet, incredible resources exist. Uh, you know, in, in most hospitals, there are um, social services, there are support groups, there are um, complementary therapies, there are pain management programs. But because we're not aware of the fact that cancer causes these side effects, these emotional and uh, psychological side effects, we don't know that we can ask for them. Um, and the doctors don't want to raise the topic because, boy, you open up that can of worms and there goes your schedule for the day. So <laughs> we're not going to get to see all the patients we need to see if we if we ask each one of them about their emotions. And so it it, it is, as, as Dino said, somewhat of a systemic uh, problem um, in the way we've structured our, our health care. But it's also the way, as a society, we think about ourselves. We don't think about ourselves as um, integrated, you know, spiritual, emotional, um, cognitive, physical beings. You know, we have we have different different lives. We we keep our cognitive self for our work. We keep our physical self for our exercise. We keep our emotional self to ourselves. Um, and so there's a, you know, and our spiritual self is assigned a special a special day or a special place. And so 
because we're not integrated, we're not experiencing cancer as an integrated um, experience either. And that's, uh, and that's where a lot of the problems come for many of us. Um, it's incredible the progress that has been made in cancer treatment and in um, uh, resolving the physical uh, effects of, of cancer. Um, but we have a long ways to go when it comes to focusing on and understanding and, and dealing with the, um, the emotional side effects, both as a patient and, of course, as the loving caregivers, because they do go through a lot. John, I want to slide over to you here and talk to you a little bit about this subject. And I know when I just looked at our notes here when when we spoke on our podcast, you had talked a, a little bit about this um, and and how you dealt with that. So, with that, uh, the mic is yours on on emotional experience and and what you did and and uh, what to expect from cancer. Thank you, Dino, and it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, you always do such a good job, but Cynthia and Michelle. You have certainly set the bar quite high for me. <laughs> Great job. Um, I was trying to do an analogy to a lot of the things that Cynthia was saying. And if you um, liken it to playing golf and a young child learning to play golf at a young age, there's so many different aspects of the game. And I'm not a golfer. I'm, I just, I hit the ball, but I'm not a golfer. But um, some, so many people from a young age, they're trained and they learn the different aspects of the game, the woods, the irons, the putting, the grip, the ball placement, all of these things. And they study it. And by the time they become adults and by the time they, let's say they get onto the, the pro tour and you look at them and you say, how are they doing this? Well, they've trained their whole lives. For us, when we're diagnosed with pancreas, well, any kind of cancer, when you're diagnosed with cancer, bang, you are whacked with it. Now, what are you going to do? You haven't been training for this your whole life. And like you were saying, Cynthia, the emotional side of it, well, it's all coming at the same time. And you're trying to deal with everything that's happening. Now, the, the clinical, the biological stuff that's happening to you inside with the um, diagnosis with the treatment, with the operation and all of that, the chemo, the fatigue. You can, you can understand it if you study it, but as a person who's just been whacked with it, it's tough. And it's so tough, like you were all saying about your wife or your spouse or your caregivers, your friends, your family. It's so difficult to deal with. And we're all different. We're all humans. We're just human beings. And we're all different. Our brains are different. Our bodies are different. Our, our activity levels are different. Everything is different. So every case is going to be different. But for me, the commonality, the thing that we all need to somehow get the strength to do is be positive. You have to learn as much as you can. And these podcasts with I'm involved I'm heavily involved with pancreatic, uh, with uh, PANCAN, the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network. 
and Dino's Project Purple. All of these things are getting the word out. And the more we know, the more we hear, the more we can somewhat understand it, the better off we're going to be able to handle it. And that's just, um, you know, my, my two cents here at this point. You know, and, and you're so right when we hear those words. I mean, first of all, there's almost universal shock and disbelief when we hear those words, no matter, you know, what might have been going on in the body leading up to the diagnosis when you hear yep. you've got cancer, almost universal shock and disbelief. How can it be? How can it be? Yeah. But we do almost all have to switch into this hyperactivity mode where we have to absorb so much information in order to come to a decision about, well, how are we going to proceed? Um, and that's also almost um, a universal uh, experience of um, uh, both, you know, hyper efficiency mode where we're uh, taking in so much, uh, but also sort of the overwhelming sense of information overload. And and it, it, it's interesting. I mean, that's where um, I think one of the first examples of a, a chemical driven uh, response occurs when we hear the words, you've got cancer because of the assumption that we're going to die. We get this massive adrenaline rush. And that adrenaline rush is supposed to help us um, prepare for the fight or flight uh, syndrome. That adrenaline rush, though, has the unfortunate side effect of shutting down the prefrontal cortex, the part of the brain that is thinking and rational and taking in information. And that means that we hear those words, you've got cancer, and then probably don't hear anything else the doctor has to say. <laughs> you know, And we have to be able to reverse that, um, that chemical uh, change in order to get through the next stage of actually hearing all of the information, making a decision about our care, um, rationalizing, okay, this choice makes more sense um, versus that choice, um, and figuring out how to move forward. And, you know, right there, we are just, we're battling our chemistry in order to do that. Um, I think you highlighted that so well, John, thank you. Cynthia, I, I got something that I wrote down, and I always take notes. I've, I've mentioned that on many podcast on all the podcasts, but I wrote something down, and then you just said something, and I, I put something underneath this. And first of all, thank you, John and Michelle, for sharing your thoughts on this. And and, and I kind of listening, kind of heard this what I wrote down. Um, you didn't come out and say it, but I guess I inferred it. And maybe that was me psychologically doing it as well. So I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but this, this, we've talked about this and it's acceptance, right? Acceptance of like, this is the reality that we're, that you are fighting cancer. And my question to Cynthia here is, as we talk about why cancer is so emotional, what to expect, that a big piece of this is, is that acceptance? I, I think that acceptance does eventually happen, but many of us fight that. Um, and the acceptance, um, I mean, I guess like when we start treatment, um, we want to be in control. Uh, you know, as human beings, we like to be in control of our lives, of our existence. Um, and yet when we start treatment, all of a sudden, 
we're not in control. We're not in control of our schedules. We're not in control of our physical response. We're not in control of our emotional response. Um, and the the idea that life is just totally beyond our ability to control is really, really challenging for uh, many people. Um, and I think we have to get past that phase of trying to control the uncontrollable um, in order to get to the point of accepting, okay, this is the reality of my life. And I think that that acceptance sort of comes and goes in in waves throughout the experience um, that we can accept that, okay, now I have to have this surgery. We have the surgery and then, oh, you have to have additional treatment. Okay, it's going to take me a little bit more time to understand what that additional treatment might be and to accept that that's what I have to do. And then we have the hope that that treatment works. And sometimes it works. And, you know, we hear those glorious words, NED, no evidence of disease. And, you know, we go dancing out of the office and we're, and we're fine. Sometimes what we hear is, no, 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 we, we need to do maintenance treatment or we need to do a secondary uh, type of treatment or whatever. And so there's this constant need to embrace and accept, um, mm-hmm. which means that we are constantly giving up a little bit more control uh, in our lives. And I, th- I think that that's a battle that, that we all struggle with. Um, and, you know, we don't want to be complacent in our lives. And yet there is a need to accept the, the treatment and the reality that this is what life means. You know, I mean, I, the, the chemotherapy protocol that I was on meant that I was going to be bald. Um, and that happened within four weeks of when I started uh, treatment. That required that I accept a new visual reality of myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got a wig and, you know, okay, I can deal with this. But then, you know, three or four cycles into the chemotherapy, it wasn't just that I was bald, but I had no eyebrows. I had no eyelashes. I had no nasal hair. I, my allergies were just driving me crazy. And it wasn't that I could put a wig on and disguise the fact that I was a cancer patient. So there was another round of, um, of acceptance that I had to go through. And of course, you know, that's a relatively, um, uh, you know, quote unquote, minor thing, um, the, the visual, uh, the visual reality of yourself, but it also is a reflection of what's going on inside and what's happening to your body. And that's the harder, um, the harder thing to accept that, um, that my body has betrayed me, um, that I don't know if I will ever again be as healthy as I was, you know, before the diagnosis. I don't know if the cancer is going to come back. And of course, that anxiety stays with us for a long time. Um, people often talk about scanxiety, that they can sort of put aside the fear of recurrence or the fear of progression for weeks at a time. And then it's time for another scan to measure the effectiveness of treatment or another test to see whether or not we're still in remission or uh, whatever might be going on. And instantly those fears come back um, as we approach that that. Uh, testing or scan date um, that stays with us for a long, long time. And um, so I, I think acceptance is something that happens 
um, long into the process uh, and that we, we find a way to benefit and grow from the experience. And therefore we accept that I have been a cancer patient. I am a cancer patient. I am living with cancer. And that allows us to continue our lives. Um, but I think it is much more common to acknowledge that this is a new reality and to fight it every step of the way. <laughs> it's so powerful because I, I when, when you started to talk about your experience and I see both John and, and Michelle nodding their head, like again, not going through cancer myself, but then realizing, wow, yeah, the, the acceptance is at, at multiple times and multiple levels. It, my my follow up question to this, and and I know we want to get onto the the next topic here in a second, but in your research, I know you talked about you know the physiological response to diagnosis and to treatments, but was there ever any research? And and this is where I wanted to, to ask about acceptance that where and I, I'd be fascinated about this because I I've seen on the podcast when people accept the cancer and they're no longer fighting the cancer, like not fighting the cancer, but fighting why they got the cancer and they accept that cancer diagnosis. And now they move forward with a plan. If you've seen in, in any of your research that there is something of a, a physiological response to the body um, and how they're able to fight cancer versus fighting the fact that they got the cancer, they don't know why they got the cancer and why this was all happening to them. Right. Well, and I think you raise a really good point, Dina, which is that um, when we are in that fight or flight mode, we are awash with adrenaline. And mm. that adrenaline um, actually uh, doesn't help us in the healing process. Um, and so it can make us run faster, um, but it, it, it makes the heart race faster and it's actually experienced as, um, as stress uh, and chronic stress uh, weakens the immune system. So there is, there is a, a chemical thing there that happens when we continue to um, fight um, the fact that we have cancer. Um, um, and there's all sorts, all sorts of great research that has been done on how um, sort of um, mind body uh, experiences, whether it is singing in the, in the uh, choir or doing yoga or Tai Chi or um, my favorite was knitting because your hands are moving and your brain has to be repeating that pattern, knit one, purl one, knit one, purl one, whatever. Um, but all of those mind body things actually have been shown to sort of turn down the adrenaline um, response and help us reverse some of that, um, uh, some of the bad chemicals flooding through our brain and um, introduce some, uh, some more positive chemical flows that, that do help strengthen the immune system and um, aid in recovery. Um, and we can talk about that a little bit more when we move on to the topic of exercise. But in, in general, um, you're right. If we're continuing to fight the fact that we have cancer instead of fighting the cancer, um, we, uh, we're not necessarily helping ourselves. Well, that's a great segue into the next subject. Uh, which is, uh, and thank you for answering that question. That I, it's fantastic, and and I, I you know, I I just have seen a lot here on the podcast um, 
you know, doing this and having so many survivors on that it's interesting. I, I get to draw this certain picture when people tell their stories of how they get to when they get to that point of accepting and not fighting the fighting with the cancer anymore emotionally, but taking it head on. Um, so it's just fascinating to me again, from my point of view, how I've seen journeys, uh, and, and talking about that acceptance and how that affects you emotionally. So let's talk about the role of exercise in aiding physical and emotional recovery from and reducing the reoccurrence from cancer. So Cynthia, if you want to tee that up and then we'll, we'll go to John first and then Michelle. Sure. Well, you know, as a, um, uh, a newcomer to the exercise junkie life, um, <laughs> I can, I can start by saying that, you know, during my experience, um, with cancer, I, forced myself to uh, to go for a walk um, pretty much every day. Um, there were usually two days a chemo cycle um, that I, I just couldn't leave the couch. But other than that, I would force myself to uh, to go for a walk. And, you know, not only did it feel nice to be outdoors, even if it was a cold, wintry day, um, but it it definitely got me, you know, up and off the couch and, and moving. And it was only much later that I came to understand that um, that exercise was helping with the fatigue and um, the emotions, um, as well as helping to strengthen the immune system. Um, and so the first thing um, I became aware of is that our bodies produce red blood cells uh, on demand. And of course, you know, we're producing red blood cells, you know, millions and millions of them are being created every day. Um, but our red blood cells carry the oxygen that give us energy. And um, a lot of red blood cells get killed off by uh, chemotherapy um, and also by radiation treatment. Um, I'm less up on the science of immunotherapies because there are so many different ones, but I know for a fact that those two things, of course, have killed a lot of red cells. That's where we lose our blood and therefore um, our red blood cell count is, is depleted. So, you know, just like marathoners will go to, um, you know, high uh, elevation to train um, because it encourages their bodies to produce more red blood cells and those red blood cells then give them more energy on the day of the race. Um, what I learned is that we can tell our bodies to produce more red blood cells by demanding more energy from ourselves. Um, and we do that by, by exercising. And so, you know, for me, the first couple of days after a chemo cycle, um, didn't want to leave the couch, but then I could force myself to, you know, walk a quarter of a mile, walk a half a mile, walk a mile. And by the end of the, um, three weeks until it was time to get whacked again, I was to the point where I had pretty much recovered all of the red blood cells that I had lost. Um, now, you can't quite get them back unless you're a marathoner before you get your uh, your um, cancer diagnosis. Um, you know, we all start from a different point of health um, uh, before uh, diagnosis. But that that drive to produce more red blood cells really helped me maintain my energy. Um, and it was only you know afterwards that I that I came to understand why. Um, and and the same it turns out is true for um, for white blood cells that help to um, to fight infection and, and stimulate the um, immune system. That um, the exercise 
um, helps to uh, strengthen the immune system by um, helping to encourage the uh, development of additional um, uh, white blood cells and, and other components of the immune system. Um, you know, what kind of exercise? Any kind of exercise. Clean the house, go for a walk, lift weights, take a swim, do yoga, <laughs> do Tai Chi, um, whatever it was, all of those exercises, um, not only do they flood our brains with uh, endorphins, um, which are another uh, chemical in our, our, our bodies and brains that help us feel good, um, but it stimulates the immune system. And um, all sorts of research has been done that shows uh, that exercise strengthens the immune system. And of course, it's the immune system that helps us um, recover from uh, cancer um, and helps reduce the uh, the likelihood of, of recurrence uh, and progression. Um, and so exercise is a, is a relatively simple thing. And of course, you have to get your doctor's permission. I'm not an exercise you know, guru that can say, this is how much exercise you um, individual cancer patients should be doing. But um, the research definitely shows that when your doctor approves it, um, the more exercise you can do, um, the better. But it also makes sense to listen to your body. And sometimes, you know, you go for a walk one day and the next day you are wiped out and say, nope, I'm just going to lie here. And recovery um, includes not just exercise, but also rest. And um, sometimes our sleep is disturbed um, by uh, all of the anxiety and all of the, the chemical changes in our bodies. Um, exercise can be helpful in stimulating a good night's sleep, but it can also um, overtire us and mean that um, because we're not sleeping well, uh, we're too tired to exercise on a regular basis. So, so and I know we're, we're, I think the, the one thing when, when we talk about exercise, the role of exercise, I know you, you gave a bunch of uh, options but I, I think we have to take this back a bit because I think when people think exercise, people are listening to this like, oh my God, like, and I know we run a lot. So people think like, oh, I got to go out and run a marathon. I, I think here that the point is just, just being active, right? It could be, like you said, I think you did mention like getting up and going to your mailbox or meditating um, or even doing yoga for five to 10 minutes. It's not this vigorous, you're going to CrossFit or you're going to go run a, a half marathon this weekend and you're, you're logging three miles a day. This is just getting the body up and moving and going. So it would be as simple as running the vacuum cleaner. <laughs> you yeah, know, that's yeah. exercise. That's a, a 20 pound more. thing. You're moving around. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So with that, uh, I, I want to go to John here first and have him share uh, and talk a little bit about the role of exercise in aiding his physical and emotional recovery uh, from cancer. So many things were said that are very important, and uh, I can relate to all of them. Um, if you start back to what I think Cindy was saying, that we all start in a different place. And, and that's true. And I'm a very lucky guy. I've always been healthy. I've always, I've never been overweight. I've always been active, much more active when I was younger. I mean, when we were younger, we went out and played outside. You know, we, we didn't have video games and things like that to keep us on the couch. I, f I feel for the kids today. But as you progress throughout your life and you remain active, some people get a job and now they're sitting behind a desk. So as soon as they start their working career, they're sitting all the time. Uh, 
And that's not the, the best thing. And I had never had a desk job. I was always physically working outside. So my starting point when I was diagnosed was I was in relatively good shape. I ran, I used to run, I played all kinds of sports. I wasn't good at any of them, but I did it. Um, so when you think about someone who has had the opportunity to sit behind a desk for many, many years, now they're 60 years old and they get diagnosed with cancer and they're overweight and they're starting from a tough spot. And then when you're diagnosed and you look at the numbers, you say 11% survive, 89% do not. It's it, it, your mind. It's, it's very, very difficult. But you have to you have to be positive and you have to fight. You, ha you have to be willing to fight this thing, because if you don't, I don't think you have a very good chance. And when it comes time for the operation and the chemo and everything, as as we all have said, it, it, you just want to lay down on the, and do nothing. You have to force yourself to get up and walk down the hall and walk back down the hall. And I was doing this in the hospital after the operation. The day after the operation, I grabbed that, that IV pole and I just went up and down the corridors in there because they said, you got to walk. All right, I'm going to walk. I, I, I want to do what the experts tell me to do because I believe that will it will help me. And... Like I said, I started from a good spot. I feel for people who have, it's such a hard thing for them to do, you know, to, to um, become physically fit uh, all of a sudden with everything else that's happening to them. And yet you don't really have a choice. You have to fight this thing. So exercise, walking, that, that is the best thing. And Cynthia was saying vacuuming. I don't care what it is. You've got to move. You can't stay in that chair. And I think that my activity level has dropped significantly since the operation because I spent almost a year in that position of just, oh, I've got nothing. I got no more left. But I would walk and I would do my exercises, not, you know, lifting weights and stuff, but just movements. And when, when all of this happened at the same time, I'm getting older. So is it my energy level is dropping because I'm older or because I had cancer or because I spent so much time laying down? I'm not sure, but it, my, I have to trudge on and get, try to get back. I'll never get back to where I was, but I got to maintain. So it, Exercises to me is monumental. Positivity uh, just, and exercise. I just want to quickly jump in and say the answer to your question is yes, yes, and yes. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> it's a combination. And of course, you know, wherever it is we start off, you know, it can take us, you know, year, year and a half, two years to get to be as well as we're going to be. But as you said, never going to get back to where I was. Time has happened. Deconditioning has happened. Um, cancer has happened. And therefore, yes, yes, and yes. <laughs> I agree. Love it. Michelle, what 
did you do in terms of exercise and eating your physical and emotional recovery from and uh, reducing uh, your reoccurrence from cancer? So is there anything you'd like to add? Yeah, thanks. And I, John, I just uh, really could uh, empathize with a lot of the comments that you made. And Cynthia, you, you mentioned uh, exercise junkie. I, I am not. I'm not an exercise junkie. Uh, never have been. Um, I do think that there's this weird thing that happens in your brain where you know you should do it, right? Like, you know, you get in that place that John was describing, and to me, when people say you're in the fight, that's a good example of a fight because you don't want to get up. You, you just don't. And um, if, if your brain could tell you you're going to feel so much better if you do this and if somehow if your brain could reconcile where you are in that moment of like, I, I just don't want to get up. But like it's going to feel so much better if you can just take a walk to the mailbox. And so I found myself in that fight a lot. Um, but like John said, when I had my Whipple procedure, it was clear to me, it was made very clear to me that you need to walk if you want to have a successful recovery from this. And, um, it just seems so counterintuitive. You're hooked up to all these things and, and you feel like your, your body's been broken, (laughs) you know, um, you don't even really know what's going on with your body at that point, but yep, I'm going to get up and walk because, uh, it's, it's so your physical, um, you almost have to like relearn your physical being, um, and connect your, where you are mentally with your physical body. And there's no, there's no better way to do that than to find the type of exercise or activity that's going to bring that out for you. And for me, I had, I've had, I've had to do, and I still continue to have that fight. I'm on a, um, trial drug right now. Well, it could be a placebo, but we're pretty sure it's the trial, the trial drug. And it gives me a lot of fatigue. And so I'm still, you know, I'm past a lot of the main treatments of that I've had over the past year, but I'm in this still in this place of having a lot of fatigue. And it is a constant battle in my head of, I just, I want to just sit down I'm at the end of my work day. I just want to have dinner and sit down and relax. But what I have to fight through is knowing if I can go take a walk out, get outdoors, take a walk, um, change my point of view. I'm going to feel better. I'm going to actually have more energy if I do that. So I'm in that, in that loop of, um, really having to have that conversation with myself quite often. (laughs) Right. Right. Well, and, and that is that sickness behavior driving the conversation bus. Um, that is the, the, uh, increase in pro-inflammatory cytokines being read by the brain as, nope, we have no energy for anything other than staying safe. And that means we're going to stay right here in this couch. Um, and it's, it's an overwhelming sensation um, throughout treatment. And whether it is, you know, a maintenance therapy or a placebo therapy, or hopefully you're getting the real therapy, it doesn't matter. You're brain is telling you go back to bed you're tired um and it is it is so hard to break that pattern um one of the things that people have told me is really um helpful is having um having a buddy um making a commitment with somebody else um that i will meet you for a walk at you know seven o'clock sunsets late you can have dinner meet a friend for a walk three days a week make a commitment. Um, and the having somebody else expecting you, um, makes it a little bit easier to, uh, to make sure that it happens. And the other thing is to find a way to 
play. I hate working out, but I love to play. Um, play, work, makes a difference. Um, so, uh, you know, if you can, I don't know, meet somebody for a bowling date or, um, uh, you know, play kickball in the grass with the kids or whatever, all of those things are great exercise and they are more playful than often we feel a, uh, a walk might be or running that vacuum cleaner, which is a I necessity. I just need to get somebody to play badminton with me and I'll be a happy camper. <laughs> there you go. Okay. <laughs> that is awesome. And, and, you know, Cynthia, you've probably done this once or twice because this is a great segue into our next subject here, uh, which is supportive communication with a cancer patient, what a patient wants and doesn't want to hear from friends and loved ones. So I love how the previous two we've said with the first one, we segued right into exercise. And now we're segueing right into, as you say, find a friend. And, you know, this is a subject. I, I think when I was looking, when we were talking about this, this was like the, the one to me that like, I really got excited about because when I've mentioned this on the podcast and John and Michelle have probably heard this, uh, I think I asked them both on the podcast as well Is like, we get, th this is like the number one call that we get here in the offices a friend, loved one gets diagnosed, what's the best thing that I could do for them? And again, just like battling cancer, there's no book. There's also no book on how to treat people with cancer, right? Like how should you treat someone who has cancer? And again, I hope that this podcast allows the opportunity to share, you know, what works and, and what people should and shouldn't do in that situation. So on that, let's talk about this subject of supportive communication with the cancer patient. Yeah. And, and that's so tricky because, you know, we all are so different and we all have a different sense of what we want to keep private and what we want to share. Um, uh, you know, what, what's really going on psychologically is really, um, dependent a lot on, on, um, the norms that we grew up with, um, our DNA, our, uh, prior, uh, emotional experiences. Um, so it's, it's a little hard to know, you know, and make blanket statements about what is going to be the right thing to say. I often tell uh, people who ask that question um, that usually the best thing is actually to listen and to say, I'm here for you, um, you know, and let the patient drive the conversation rather than um, assume um, that you know what the, the patient might want or need. Um, but I think that it's... Um, it's often hard for cancer patients to feel like they can burden their friends and caregivers um, one more time, one more way. Um, you know, we become so helpless. You know, we come home from the hospital and we're in pain. Um, we can't move. We can't get in and out of bed. We need help getting to the bathroom. We need somebody to help us change our dressing, you know, whatever it is. We are so dependent. And um, if we were the driving force in a um, in a household, uh, grocery shopping, making meals, tending to kids, um, going to the office, earning the money that keeps the um, insurance in place, and now all of a sudden we can't do that. We're asking other people to pick up the pieces for us, and so we feel like we've already burdened our caregiver so much. Um, and oh, by the way, they're feeling much of the same stress, not the emotional, not the, the chemically driven emotional um, stress that we're feeling, but a lot of the same stress around, um, is she going to survive? How am I going to 
get on with her? How am I going to keep the household running while she is uh, dealing with her cancer? Um, and on and on and on. Um, and so again, we feel like we can't we can't necessarily burden them. And so, as Michelle said, you know, you find another outlet for some of your um, emotional um, uh, issues so that you're not um, uh, burdening your spouse with your uh, with your fears. Um, but you do need to be able to be honest with them about what you're feeling. And one of the things that that happens uh, frequently in a cancer situation is that the patient holds back a little bit of their emotions and the spouse or loving caregiver um, care partners uh, hold back a little bit of their emotions and we start to have a gap growing in the communication and um, and the emotional intimacy between um, friends and and in care partners um, and and it's hard to know it's like well when can I share how much uh, is it safe to share and some of that is we're being self-protective we don't want to open ourselves up and then get a bad response. Um, one patient I interviewed, uh, uh, a devastating diagnosis of a, um, appendix uh, cancer, and he was telling one of his buddies, and you know his friend said, well, we all got to go sometime, as if it was accepted that he was dying as opposed to what can I do to help you get through this? Um, and so we don't necessarily want to expose ourselves and have a bad response. And so we don't share. Um, or as a partner, we don't want to assume a degree of um, emotional uh, response that the patient hasn't already shared with us. And so we don't ask, or maybe we're not capable of dealing with one more stress. And so we don't ask. Um, and often, you know, we, we sort of negotiate through the process and then treatment ends and everybody says, oh, great, Cynthia's all fine. I don't have to ask her anymore about does she need any help? And um, a lot of people sort of disappear from the supportive care uh, world uh, when treatment ends, even though um, for most of us, we are nowhere near ready to jump back into uh, to life as it used to be. So it's a, it's a tricky process and knowing what to say and how to say it and how to be respectful of the patient's needs um, can be challenging. So, so Michelle, we're going to go to you first here. In in your experience, um, what did you hear from your friends and loved ones that uh, was supportive? Uh, yes. Um, and I think people often, they, they don't, you know, it's kind of like rings of your, your, um, family, friends, and then kind of colleagues, you know, got different rings of people. And, and I think depending on where someone is in your life, they, they might not know what to say at all. They might reach out with a card or flowers, which I always appreciated any of that. Anybody who took an effort to make any um, supportive gesture, whether it was a text message or, uh, you know, uh, a handwritten card, that's my love language, by the way, I'm a words of affirmation person. So that, and I would tell people, um, cause I did share, uh, on, you know, on like on my Facebook page, I would share very periodically, not, not frequently, but like generally after like maybe a milestone in my treatment, I would share something. And then I would say within that post, you're, 
your messages, your cards, everything, it means so much to me. And like just reaffirming for people, if they're doing something that is meaningful for you to, to give that feedback to people, because then I think they'll do, they'll, they'll feel more confident about that and, and, and do it more. Um, when you kind of start bringing the rings in, um, I had, you know, family and friends, they just, they don't know what to do. And some people have, may have been through situations in the past where they supported another person who was close to them with cancer. And they have already have an idea in their mind about what they need to do, you know, what needs to be done for Michelle. Um, and I think where people can go wrong is if they don't involve the person who's sick in brainstorming of what, what, what do you, you know, what do you need? Um, because, you know, I, I was thinking my husband and I often thought about like when I went through um, all of my treatment, we didn't have kids in the house. Our kids are grown and flown. And um, if for some reason we still had kids in the house, I'll tell you what I, what we would have needed for support would have looked a lot different. And I don't know how some families go through it when you have, um, you know, one of the parents with a, a busy household uh, on sidelines like this, you need a lot of support. But what we needed was a little bit different. And so I had a friend of mine who I think she just was a good observer and she had a good idea of what went on in our household and then overlay COVID over a lot of this, right? Because we were being very cautious about, you know, not having people around because we didn't want to introduce that risk for me. Um, so she knew uh, I, I was having a hard time to find things I like to eat, but I loved bagels and you can't get a good bagel in the town I live in, but she makes them. And so she kept me stocked with bagels for, weeks on end and they were wonderful. And then she would, um, along with the box of bagels, stick a bottle of vodka for my husband, my poor <laughs> husband, his vitamin D. But, um, you know, I mean, I think as someone who loves a person with cancer, I think you, you have to involve them with brainstorming for ideas. Um, you have to really understand what's going on in their, in their network. Um, I had people that wanted to come to, to my treatment sessions with me, but they were only allowing one person and you bet that was going to be my husband, right? Like, so, you know, I think some people got, uh, it's hard to meet everyone's expectations when you're the one that is sick and you shouldn't have to do that. So like involve them in, in what it is that they want um, for support and um, be observant and understanding of like what is going on in that lifestyle and that household. Um, because what is needed for support is different um, for each person. Yeah, I think that that's so uh, such good advice to say be observant and and to and to listen and and to involve the uh, the patient. There was one um, patient who uh, shared her story with me and and told me that you know somebody jumped in and and decided that she needed to clean her house for her and and clean the bathroom and it was like it was such a generous offer, but never had the conversation to say would you like me to clean your house? Would you like me to scrub your bathroom? And as a patient, she felt like, well, there's another element of control that had been taken away from me. I have zero control over my life. And now somebody who is a friend, but not a dear friend is going to clean my bathroom. That feels far too personal. I don't want that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, yeah, a conversation about would you like would it be okay if I brought over dinner tonight? Would you like it if I took the kids uh, with us on Saturday for this adventure? Would it be helpful? 
Um, if I arranged transportation for you um, for your next couple of appointments, so many ways that conversation can go, but it starts with um, being observant and knowing the patient and the, and the household. And secondly, with involving the patient in the conversation. John, we'll go to you next here. Uh, was there things that, uh, that you heard when you were going through your journey as a cancer patient that, uh, that you wanted to hear from friends and family and maybe some examples of that? Well, a lot has changed in seven years and awareness is, is forefront now. There's all kinds of cancers. But back seven years ago, we didn't know too much about it. And my friend came over when I called him and told him that I was, had been diagnosed. And his sister-in-law had passed away from pancreatic cancer they understood how bad it was. And when they heard that, hey, John was just diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, it's like, well, they had to come over. I, I don't know if they knew what they were going to say or anything, but their, their thing was they brought a lot of information about pancreatic cancer with them because they had gained all of that information from their sister-in-law. So when they came over, of course, they know me well, and my family knows me well, and they know that, that I'm a fighter and that if anybody can beat this thing, John can beat this thing. You know, And I think everybody felt that. What they say, the words they say, or the words that I, well, what did I want them to say? I would like them to say, hey, make this go away somehow. <laughs> it's not never gonna happen. So I don't know what I wanted anyone to say, and they don't know what they want to say. So it's kind of a very difficult thing. It's a very, and then everybody's in a different spot. If you're stage two and you're eligible for the Whipple, I'm just talking primarily about pancreatic cancer here, then that's one situation. So there's one person. This person over here is overweight. He's stage four. His wife wants a divorce. He doesn't have medical insurance. The situations can be so different yeah. that, you know, and I don't think anybody, um, unless you run into somebody, then it's like, oh, what do I say? You know, it's not like you're going to go to some stranger's house or somebody who you don't know very well and go over there and, and talk to them about pancreatic cancer. I don't think people do that. Uh, it's when you... Um, nonchalantly run into someone that's where it's like oh my god what do i say what do i say and i know in my particular case my wife cindy she she just couldn't talk about it she couldn't talk about it one day she went to the bank and somebody had heard and the teller at the bank said oh cindy i'm so sorry and she burst out crying because she'd rather not talk about it because then she doesn't cry you know, it's very difficult for everybody involved. And I don't, I personally don't have an answer as to what to say. I, I just wanted, I, I thought of one thing too, as John was talking, but like one thing that helped me is to be in the back of my mind, assume good intent, because some people don't say the right things and it's not, 
the words that they say, they're really not matching their heart or their intent. And I tried to, I tried to always assume good intent unless it was an arch enemy. And then I knew they were trying to, (laughs) I mean, I I just tried to assume that there was a good intention behind it. Yes. Well, I think that's absolutely right, Michelle. And, and, um, you know, sometimes there's even good intention behind uh, silence. Um, You know, I didn't, I didn't hear from my brother throughout my cancer treatment. Um, and that's not because he doesn't love me. Um, and I, I know that um, even though it felt hurtful at the time, it was his inability to get comfortable enough with the idea that I might die um, to be able to engage in a conversation with me during my uh, treatment process and, and during the time when he was so uncertain about the outcome. Um, and and so the the good intention was there, um, but the inability to know how to act on it um, uh, prevented the conversation. And I think that that you know often uh, people don't know what to say. And again, because we don't talk about mental health as a as a society, and we don't talk about cancer, and so we're certainly not going to talk about the mental health of cancer. Um, and that hesitancy uh, keeps a lot of people from being um, uh, supportive in ways that we would anticipate that they would be supportive. I hope that this episode gets people talking about it though, Cynthia and Michelle and John, right? Like, you know, and, and hopefully, and, and, you know, I was smiling as you said that Cynthia about, you know, having these conversations because I, I think these are all very difficult conversations to have, right? As, as everyone has expressed, you know, going through their own personal journeys and how certain people dealt with it, right? Like you, you all three just gave really accurate examples of that. But I think I, well, I, I think, and I hope by us talking about it here, we allow people to open up and to talk about it. And, and hopefully the person on the other line watching or listening to this, then maybe we'll think about it differently, you know, and be able to do it. And Cynthia, you're right. There, there is no, there's no rule book. I mean, there's a lot of resources, right, on cancer. And all cancers are so different, as John had mentioned, you know, there's various, you know, just within pancreatic cancer, right? Like everyone's different in how they're diagnosed, how their their circumstance, their health, their financial status. We see that every day here um, with patients that, that reach out to us. And, and so th- there's not one size fits all. And, and so everyone deals with it differently. They come with it a different set of circumstances. Um, they come from different paths of life. Um, and how they deal with that is different. But I guess I hope that we, sh- we share some ideas here that are thought-provoking that start those conversations because these are hard conversations, right? But it's, I, I, I guess I look back at, I, I try to use like sports a lot of times. And I know we were talking about the role of exercise just before. And, and I think the biggest step is that first step, whatever that first step may be. If, if it's getting off the couch to, to vacuum, if that's the role of exercise or getting off the couch to walk down the driveway to get the mail, or in this situation, having that first conversation with that loved one that, Hey, this is where I'm coming from. 
this is my intent behind why I'm being quiet or why I want to clean that bathroom is because I don't know how to deal with this, right? Like, I don't know how to deal with the, the loss of losing a loved one or seeing a loved one struggle through this. And this is how I'm dealing with it. So I hope that this has kind of gets that conversation going or gets those ideas going and, and also allows people the opportunity to think in that mindset. Um, our last piece here is self-advocacy. And what do I want to do here is I'd I love, and, and I know Cynthia, that we can go down, we can go down all these rabbit holes. I always say rabbit holes, but they, these are very thought-provoking uh, topics. But with self-advocacy, I know we talk a lot about it. You've done a lot of talk on this. I'd love to hand it over to you, but then I'd love to go back to Michelle and John uh, and and uh, John first and then Michelle, but just talk about maybe th their best practice that they had or maybe still do this in self-advocacy with their doctor or with their medical team to just share like maybe something that they've kind of seen that's worked really well with them, you know, to share with our audience. So with that, Cynthia, it's back to you for self-advocacy. Sure. And, and that's such an important topic, Dino, because um, as I say to the patients that I mentor, you know, nobody knows what it's like inside your body other than you. You're the only one who knows what you're feeling, um, both physically and emotionally, um, how the treatment is affecting you. And, you know, your doctor may be the expert in um, the, your particular type of cancer and this particular treatment, but you are the only expert in you. In you. And so it has to be that every time you're with your doctor, it is a dialogue between experts. Um, it is a conversation that happens between two people with mutual respect for each other because of their different um, expertise and because of the high level of expertise that they both bring to that conversation. But that's a really um, big ask for a lot of people. Um, many of us grew up with um, the sense that, you know, we do whatever it is the doctor tells us to do, uh, that the doctor is the only expert and that we should just be quiet and listen. But more and more, um, we are learning that medicine happens at its best when, in fact, the doctor is fully informed about what you're experiencing. And even something as simple as pain, um, which, you know, is never really that simple. But it turns out that when pain is better managed, recovery happens better. Um, and it also turns out that our emotions really influence how we recover. Um, the, our emotions influence how well we adhere to treatment and how well we are able to tolerate treatment. Our sensation of pain is greater when we are depressed or stressed than when we are calm. So the, we can't really separate the emotional from the physical. And so we need to engage with our uh, care professionals in a way that um, uh, relies on our expertise as to how it feels inside, both physically and emotionally, uh, so that we can have that conversation. I love it. Let's go to John on 
your best practice with self-advocacy, John, during your whole journey, and this could be something that you're still doing now, something that you do with your doctor and your medical team in, in being that supportive and that strong self-advocate? I think the, the main thing is you have to be honest and you have to be honest with your doctor and you have to open up and explain how you feel. Um, when, when you're sitting there with the doctor and you're asking him all these questions, he is, he can't give you the answers that you want, but if you have a tougher diagnosis than I did, or the stage, this uh, a worse stage, there are things now. There are clinical trials. There are um, many more things than there were seven years ago that you can advocate for. And part of that, part of the advocation for yourself is your own work, fight, research to find out what is available. And I would do anything, whatever it would take. And if it, if it was some kind of oddball therapy or whatever, if that's my choice, if that's my only choice, then I'm going for it. But I have, I have to trust the experts. But then again, you have to ask the experts. It's not just one. So you have to advocate for yourself by researching and finding out what's available. Um, it's, it's part of the fight. Powerful. Michelle, <laughs> anything uh, that you have done in, in working with your medical team and your doctor to be that self-advocate that you could yeah. share? Yeah, and I, I would at the risk of repeating some of the things that John said, because it's very similar. And I find that to be very interesting about us, John. But um, I definitely felt from the beginning, once I got through the turmoil of understanding the diagnosis, I got pretty quickly to the point of what's my job here? What's my role? And one of one of the pieces that was important to me in my job was to really engage as much as I could to learn find what resources were available to me and learn. Um, and then, for example, that's how the clinical trial that I'm in now, I, I found it myself. I brought it to my oncologist. Um, and, and so it wasn't like, I never, I, I guess I never went to an appointment thinking, oh, I just can't wait to show up and find out what's provided to me. I knew certain things would be provided to me, but I felt like it had to be that dialogue of, um, you know, what, what could it, what could I learn about what's going on with pancreatic cancer? I mean, this is, this is the fight of your life when you have this type of cancer. Um, you know, it's, it's a very, very dismal, um, prognosis for most people. And so what higher purpose do I have right now in my life? than I need to learn everything I can about it so that I can, uh, ask the right questions and have that dialogue, um, with, with my doctors. Um, and, and, Honestly, you know, I, I got to the end of my treatment. I, I was no evidence of disease in December of 2021. And I had found this trial that I'm in now. And by all rights, someone would say, why are you going into a trial now? You're, you're, you're healthy. You've completed treatment. And the point of this trial is for um, 
to determine if this trial drug can prevent recurrence of pancreatic cancer, which has a very high recurrence rate, and especially in the first two years, I think it's 60 or 70%. And so my, um, my advocacy went beyond finishing the treatment to say, there's something more I can do. And, and it's, it's taking a lot of time and, and, and financial resources to, to engage in this, but I feel really good about it because it, it feels like something I can do that may benefit me, but by all means will benefit the learning that we have about how to prevent recurrence for this disease. But, um, you know, to me that that's how I, I think an example of how I've approached advocacy um, for myself of like really working hard to understand what's going on out there in the medical community around research and what's evolving in terms of the treatment for pancreatic cancer, particularly for some of the genetic risk. I, I think you raised such a great point, Michelle, um, about uh, the need to do um, to do your own research. We're not all natural researchers. Um, and, um, and some of us have a different level of need for control than, than others. I was a high control, high research <laughs> patient myself. Um, but, but others don't, don't want to know, um, and don't want to take on that degree of, of, of expertise. Um, but it's interesting because even if you don't want to know, there's probably somebody in your care team who does and can play that role. Um, and I know a number of patients who um, said, you know what, I can't read the medical literature, but this person can. And I'm assigning them the task of understanding um, everything about my disease and helping me in the decision-making process. Um, and, and that's a really interesting way of advocating for yourself. And, and you know, we don't necessarily think about self-advocacy um, with our care teams, but we all have a group of people around us who have always uh, played different roles in our lives. Um, there was one uh, patient who uh, was in her 70s when she got a, a devastating diagnosis and her daughter happened to have worked at a pharmaceutical company. And she said to her daughter, you do it. You figure out what I should and shouldn't be doing. You show up for every single one of my appointments and talk with the doctor because you're going to be the expert. I can't be the expert in this, but you can be. And that was her way of advocating for herself. She couldn't have that the dialogue that you know we've talked about needing to have with your doctor, but she knew her daughter could. And so she just enlisted her daughter's help. Um, most of us have somebody around us, even if we're not the ones who can do that research. Um, that would be happy to do that if we if we engage them in the in the project. So powerful, uh, and and you know the, the, this last subject of of self advocacy is such an important one, and I'm glad we saved it for the end. And um, I, I just want to say this: um, I, I hate to sound like a broken record, but I I do hope for the people listening and watching on the other side that hopefully they've gained some knowledge that they didn't have going into this. Um, and this is what this podcast is about, you know, is sharing stories and, and sharing these ideas and how people can get through not just the pancreatic cancer journey, but here the cancer journey as a whole, because cancer's cancer, right? And, and I know from a, a biological standpoint and from a treatment standpoint, yes, every cancer is different in how they, they treat the cancer itself. You know, breast cancer is not like, pancreatic cancer in terms of the treatments, but there's some high level things here that I, I hope this episode has helped 
people out there in, in the world today uh, to start these conversations and to think a little bit differently. And and as we said, there's there's really no playbook on how to deal with these things. But I think if you grab some of these resources, you know, here in the pancreatic cancer space, I know, John, you've mentioned, you know, PanCan has some great resources. There's other groups, you know, we provide financial aid. There's other groups that provide certain other assistance in some local geographic areas. So there's a lot of groups out there. I, I think the challenging piece there's a lot of challenging pieces, but getting a cancer diagnosis, we we kind of get into a tizzy, right? There's that fog of, oh my God. And then you're kind of thrust into the medical system. As we said, the medical system doesn't always, you know, it, there's a lot of cracks in the medical system, right? From all, from all aspects, emotionally, financially. Um, and so the hope here with this podcast is that we've provided some of these tools and resources so that people have the ability then when they go through this journey that they have kind of a playbook. So with that, I want to thank you guys for once again being guests on the Project Purple podcast. Um, we always share where to connect. And I think the best place for where people can connect is to listen to these previous episodes. So wherever you listen to podcasts, um, you can search for John's episode, you can search for Michelle's episode, and you can search for Cynthia's episode. And also give Cynthia a plug here because you have your book. It's available on is it on Audible, Cynthia? I have hard it, copies. It, it's not on Audible, but it is available on uh, Amazon and wherever books are sold. Um, the, the Big, big Ordeal, Ordeal, Understanding and Managing the Psychological Turmoil of Cancer. <laughs> Thank you, John. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And, I love it. And there's a lot of great information also on my website. If you don't feel like buying a book, um, feel free to go to thebigordeal.com. Um, a lot of terrific information uh, that was used in the book or is related to the content of the book and a lot of stories. Um, and every time you listen to or read somebody else's story, it gives you a little bit of an idea that might help you in coping with your own cancer diagnosis. So I highly, I highly recommend that you just take a look. Awesome. Cynthia, thank you for once again for all you do for the cancer community. John and Michelle, thank you for your inspiring stories and, and once again for being a guest on the Project Purple podcast. Thank you Thanks so much. It's a pleasure being here. That's a wrap of another episode of the Project Purple podcast. If you like what you hear today, feel free to share this episode and follow us wherever you listen to podcasts. And until next time, please be safe. Thanks for listening.